Please open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. You'll find the notes to this morning's message in the bulletin, or if you're viewing online, it should be there, a link on our church website. And I'll remind you of our tandem study that we began in the new year through the book of James and through Psalm 119. I'd long wrestled with how to approach Psalm 119. It's been my intent desire, if the Lord gives me grace and time, to teach through all the Psalms. And Psalm 119, the single longest chapter in the Bible, on the one hand, seemed difficult to cram into two or three weeks. On the other hand, if we went strophe by strophe, we'd be doing it for about half a year. And so I came up with a plan, I hope it's working, of doing a few weeks in Psalm 119 and then going through the next section of James. We've just come through seven weeks in the first major section of James. Now we'll be spending two or three weeks in Psalm 119 and the plan will be to return. So um, with that, by way of introduction, I'll also remind you that Psalm 119 is an extended acrostic poem. If it were English, the equivalent would be the first eight verses beginning with A, the next eight verses beginning with B, and so on, except this is following the Hebrew alphabet. And many of your Bibles, in fact, will even indicate that with the first eight verses beginning Aleph, and then Beit, and then Gimel, Dalet, and now we begin the Hay stanza, or strophe, eight verses, chunks, and it is profound in its richness. Um, The psalm is about the man of God, the woman of God, talking with God, relating to God, centered around the word of God. Um, It is is profound in its richness. I'd like to begin by reading verses 33 to 40. We'll have a word of prayer and then we will dive in. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Confirm your servant to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Lord God, we echo the prayers of the psalmist. We would ask that you would teach us, that you would give us understanding, that you would lead us in your path, that you would direct our hearts to your words, that you would turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, that you would confirm your word to us, that you would remove the shame and reproach that we dread, that you would give us life in your righteousness. Lord, help us to understand how we are to grow, to learn, to live in you and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As you consider these eight verses, um, it's, it, I'll point out the structure. Each of the first seven verses contains a petition or more than a petition. So you get verse 33, teach me. 34, give me. 
Verse 35, lead me. Verse 36, incline my heart. 37, turn my eyes. 38, confirm. 39, turn away. And then we have a declaration in verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts. So there's a series of prayer requests, sometimes with rationale for the prayer request being given, sometimes with motive or goal, and it culminates with a declaration of the psalmist. We've come out of the last strophe where his soul was clinging to dust, or he was dealing with deep depression and sorrow. Here the focus primarily is on growing and living and obeying God's word. And there are a lot of wrong understandings about sanctification, Um, On the one end, there's a school of thought that's stoic, stiff upper lip, you just do your bit. It can bend towards legalism, it can bend towards formalism, an attempt to obey God on your own strength, in your own merit. That is not right. And then on the other end, largely repelled from that notion, is a sort of just love Jesus and do whatever you want type of um, antinomianism, lawlessness. And yet, it's clear from this psalm, and what we've got to try to wed together, is a vigorous, robust, passionate pursuit of holiness. Passionate pursuit of God's word. Done in relationship with God, done in dependence on God. Not formally, not legally, but inwardly. And this text, I think, makes that clear. I've titled this morning's message, Depend Upon the Lord. Notice what the psalmist is depending on God for. We'll go through this verse by verse. God needs to teach him in the first verse. God needs to give him understanding in the second verse. God needs to lead him in the third verse. God needs to direct his heart in the next verse. God needs, he needs God to turn his eyes from looking at things. This is not a stanza about pursuing holiness in your own strength, formally, legally, Just gird up your mind and just do it. This is utter dependence on God. But it's an utter dependence on God, hungering, thirsting, pursuing holiness. Pursuing Christ's likeness, we'd say in the new covenant. And so I think it's important for us to learn this, that there is a a way to pursue holiness, to pursue God's word that is not pharisaical, that is not legalistic, that is pleasing to God, and it's modeled for us here. And it demands that we depend Upon the Lord. I've broken this strophe into three sections. Three themes seem to jump out. The first, train me. Train me. I actually originally was going to put educate me, but the more I thought about it, training is a more full orbed picture. The three petitions in the first three verses teach, give me understanding, but the leading has that idea of discipleship. It's not just content, but show me how. So I think training is probably a a good picture. Train me. Train me. Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. The psalmist, we don't know who the psalmist is. I've suggested that someone like Daniel living in Babylon is a good fit. Can't be dogmatic on that point. But the psalmist is a sojourner. He's surrounded by godless people. We'll see the shame he deals with a little later. And so he recognizes his dependence on God instructing him. God needs to instruct him. Your first blank here. I need the Lord to teach and illuminate me. I think that's the the sum total of the idea of the first two verses. Teach me and give me understanding. So there's the teaching, 
which the camera, if you're thinking, can focus on the instructor conveying information, give me understanding, the student needs to interpret it properly. The student needs to see it properly. So teach and illuminate, I think, are two ways of getting this idea across. He needs God to teach him, and he needs God to make sure he understands what God teaches him. That's, that's the idea. This is the dependency. One of the dangers someone like I can face is having been trained in Greek, and my Hebrew is kind of pathetic, but I can diagram sentences, and I can approach studying the Bible as if I can do this. I can turn the crank, and out comes truth. And it's not as though studying the Bible is divorced from grammar and syntax and language, but according to the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us. It's, it's, a, it's a synergistic process. The Spirit illuminating the mind, leading in truth, even as we study to show ourselves approved. I need to remember that, lest I be, approach God's word as if it's something I can pry open, I can pull the truth out of. No, I'm dependent, you're dependent, we're dependent on God to teach us. We're dependent on God to teach us. Notice the content of the teaching is God's word and his revealed will. Your statutes. So this isn't teaching of a variety of subjects. This is about teaching from God's word. And we need to be aware that we need God to teach us. Now, I don't want to put that in any way in contrast to the teachers God gives the body. God teaches us through a number of means. This isn't about walking out into the wilderness and just praying, okay, God, teach me. It's utilizing the tools, the methods God has given. So in Ephesians chapter 4, we read that Christ gave apostles to the church and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So one of the ways God teaches his people is through gifted people in his church. But we need to approach that seeing God behind them. God teaches me through gifted people who've written books who are long dead. God teaches us to remember. So, so I don't want you to think this is somehow abstracted from or in conflict with learning and studying and small groups and gathering. But it's seeing that God needs to be the one here and now who makes things grow. First Corinthians 3, one man waters, one man plants. God makes it grow. And so even though, even as I hope God is going to be pleased to bless and to, to give information instruction, even through my preaching right now, it's, he's the one who has to do it. We need to recognize that. The content, God's word. One other thing I'll, I want to pause here and show you is this particular strophe, to my thinking, seems particularly in line with the promises of the new covenant. It's always been the case that God is the one who teaches his people, but I want to show you. Go to Jeremiah 31, if you would. There are two major New Covenant passages in the Old Testament. I'd heartily recommend you note them, jot some way down and find them. Um, they, they promise the New Covenant that Christ purchased with his blood. And I want to look at them and see what they contain for promises. My logic being, even as this Old Covenant saint models this prayer, we as New Covenant saints should be praying this way even more vigorously. So we're going to look at Jeremiah and then we're going to look at Ezekiel. Jeremiah 31 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Then, so what, we're, what he just tells us is we're going to look at dissimilarity or discontinuity. Here's how the new covenant differs from the old covenant. 
It'll be similar to the Old Covenant in a number of ways, but we're focusing now on the dissimilarity, right? For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I'll remember their sins no more. So one of the blessings of the new covenant is God's going to put his word and his law within our hearts, and we're going to know him. It's not to say we won't be teaching each other more about who God is, but anyone in the new covenant, by virtue of being in the covenant, knows God. Turn, turn over to Ezekiel, quickly. Ezekiel 36. Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, they're worth noting, writing down in the front cover of your Bible somewhere. These are rich passages. In fact, Ezekiel 36 and the promise of the new covenant here, I believe, is what Jesus is referencing in his encounter with Nicodemus. Last week, we considered Jesus saying, you must be born again, and how the new birth is a sovereign work of God that you and I do not initiate. Here's where it's promised. And he's speaking to a people in exile. Pick it up in verse 24 of chapter 36. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean of all your uncleanness for all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So when Jesus says you must be born of water and the spirit, here's the water, there's the spirit. I think this is the text he has in view. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers. And you shall be my people and I'll be your God. So the new covenant promises the indwelling Holy Spirit, the new heart, the new birth, cleansing, and I think these promises of the new covenant are directly in line with the prayer requests here. We need God to teach us. We need God to instruct us. We need God to write his law in our hearts. We need God to apply his word to us. The content of this training is God's word and revealed will. But I want you to notice what the psalmist brings to the table. There's a correspondence. He wants God to teach him but it's not just so he can know things, not just so he can impress people, not so he can recite things. He wants God to teach him so he can do things. The commitment, so that I might fully obey it. That's what I believe the phrase, keep it to the end, means, or the end of my days. Psalmist wants God to instruct them, but with a very practical purpose. This, this dovetails nicely with what we were thinking about in James a few weeks ago. Remember, James says, hey, if you need wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all. What was the condition? Ask sincerely. Ask in faith. Don't ask thinking, well, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't do it. This is the same logic here. Come to the giving God. Ask for wisdom. Ask for his instruction. And the only condition would be come with an intention to carry it out. Don't come double-mindedly. Come saying, God, show me, show me what your word says so I can do it. And if we can come sincerely like that, God promises, we saw in James, to generously give wisdom to us. We just got to make sure we're not being double-minded, 
double-souled, fickle, inwardly vacillating. We come in sincerity with commitment that might fully obey it. Notice the psalmist highlights both the quantity of the commitment, the quantity of the commitment to the end, how much fully. I will keep it to the end of my days in, in great quantity. And in the second request for understanding that I may keep your law and observe it, the quality with my whole heart, sincerely, genuinely, not legalistically, I will Keep your, I desire what you're saying. God, I want to obey you all the expanse of my days and with all of my heart. And from that vantage point, the psalmist cries out, God, teach me. The quantity to the very end of my days with the quality with my whole heart. So that's the first two requests. Sum up, teach and illuminate me all of your word, all of your revealed will. The only qualification, the only thing the psalmist highlights is his desire. I want you to do this so that I can obey it. I want you to do this so that I'm enabled to keep it. That, that would need to be our desire as well. And if we have that desire, this psalm, James, boldly asks for God to teach you. Just make sure you're asking to learn so that you can do, so you can apply, so you can live But more than just teaching, the psalmist needs God to help him to do it. It's not as though God says to us, I mean, why don't you understand the riches we have? It's not as though God says to us, hey, I'll tell you, I'll make you understand, then you can go do it. Look at the next petition. The ESV, I think, blunts the force of this, lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Literally, it's cause me to march. Um, The New American Standard Translation puts it this way. Make me, make me walk in your paths. And and so the psalmist is first asking God, I need to know, I need to understand, I need you to illuminate me, I need to grasp what you're saying, and then I need you to move within me to do it. You're, You're blank here. I need the Lord to cause me to walk in his commandments. I need the Lord to cause me to walk in his commandments. This, again, this isn't legalism. This isn't self-reliance. This is dependency upon God. Um, this is how we need to pursue holiness. We need to pursue holiness. We need to pursue obedience. We need to do it this way. Dependent on God to instruct. Dependent on God to move within us. I must seek, here's your next blank, his enablement to obey. I must seek his enablement to obey. We saw that in Ezekiel, right? What's, what's one of the characteristics of the new covenant? I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It is completely in line with scripture to say, God, cause me to obey. Cause me to walk in your statutes. It's precisely what the new covenant promises. I'll put my spirit within you, Ezekiel 36, 27, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's biblical to pray that way. It's it's biblical to pray that way. I must seek his enablement to obey. Um, This is not to eliminate our responsibility. Our temptation can be to think, well, if God needs to move within me, then I guess I can just sit back and wait till God makes me feel like obeying. We even see in this psalm what we can be doing, praying, beseeching, asking God. But listen to Philippians 2, 12 to 13. There is a mysterious interworking between God and ourselves in our sanctification. 
Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling precisely because God is the one working in me, causing me to will and to do. So this doesn't eliminate our responsibility. If anything, I say it establishes it. But the obedience that honors God is an obedience that recognizes we need him moving in us. So pray that way. Pray dependently. God, cause me, cause me to obey you. Cause me to walk in your paths. This, this strophe is, is a demonstration of utter dependence on God. And notice also the motive. Lead me, to, in the, lead me or cause me to walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. For I delight in it. God, cause me to do the things my heart desires already. Or another way of saying is conform my external actions to my inward desires. Lord, there's a desire in my heart. Would you cause me to fulfill that desire? I want to please you. I want to walk in obedience. I want to do what is right and pleasing to you. I doubt I will have the strength. I fear that perhaps tomorrow I won't want to do that. So right now I'm asking you, would you make me do it? Would you work in me to do it? And so through this instruction and this illumination and this causing to walk, I think we have a picture of God training. Now he'll do it through his people. He'll do it through the body He'll do it through a number of means, but God grows his people. He makes it grow. He causes his word. We, we sang this right before this message. Cause your truth to sprout and grow up in our hearts. And that's how we have to come to this. But he doesn't just stop there. That's, that's bold enough. God, you've got to teach me. You've got to make me understand. And you've got to cause me to walk in it. Notice where he gets to next, conform me. So train me, now we're at conform me. Conform me. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. If, if you are struggling with the sovereignty of God, and the last prayer seemed bold. Lord, make me walk. This next one's even more intimate. Biblically, the heart is far more than our culture thinks of the heart. We think of the heart primarily in two ways. Emotions. I love him or her with all my heart. Or intuition. You know, you got to follow your heart. Biblically, the heart is sort of an umbrella category for your entire immaterial being. You can do a study in the Bible. People reason in their heart. They think in their heart. They plan in their heart with the heart one believes. And so the heart is the real immaterial you. You could swap in soul if you want as a category. It's far broader than just emotions or intuition. And so what the psalmist is saying is, God, I need you to alter my immaterial self. I need you to direct it. And we're talking about the level of desires, affections, intentions, loves, hates. Yeah, we, we need God to do that as well. And, and I think this should be obvious enough to you. 
We are powerless to directly affect our hearts. I wouldn't, wouldn't sanctification be simple if I could just choose right here and now, I'm going to stop caring about what other people think of me. I'm just going to choose to stop caring. Can't do it. I can want to stop caring about what people think about me, but I can't turn that desire off that craves the approval of others. It'd be simple if I could just choose to love my enemies. I mean, why would I not love my enemies? I just, just could love them. I can want to do that. I can desire to do that. The doing of it is another matter. We, we cannot reach inside our hearts and change them. But we can ask God to. We should ask God to. And here is exactly what we see. Incline my heart to your testimonies. You find yourself bored with God's word? You find yourself far more intrigued by lesser things? Okay. Talk to God about it. Ask God to change your heart. This is what you can do. You can ask your loving father, Oh Lord, would you incline my heart to your testimonies? My heart is not inclined to your testimonies. It's inclined to selfish gain. I'm all about thinking how I can advance at my work. I'm all about thinking how I can get things for myself. How I can make things go well for me. God, would you turn my heart from that to your word? I must seek... um, to him to incline my heart towards his testimonies and away from selfish gain. Because loving one thing is always turning you from another. Valuing one thing, there's a shift. There's a to and there's a from. To God's word, from selfish gain. And again, this is a pattern that's in Scripture. This is not unique to this passage of the Psalms. Um, turn, I think it's the last passage I'll ask you to turn to. Turn to 1 Kings 8. Dedication of the temple by Solomon. So even as the new covenant promises God will give us a transformed and new heart, all the more reason why we should be praying this way, even before the new covenant, God's people were praying this way. Um, 1 Kings 8 is the description of the dedication and then Solomon's prayer, but I want to just zoom into one portion of it towards the end. Verse 54. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plead to the Lord, He arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched towards heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he is with our fathers, may he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him and walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. You see, Solomon, may God incline our hearts to him and to his word. We should be praying this way. Lord, with what little desire I have for you in this moment, I beseech, I beg you, turn, turn my heart towards you. These are prayers God answers. These are prayers God hears. Um, I've said this before. You, you, you can't be too weak for the Lord. He, he delights in helping the weak. You can be too strong for him. This is a prayer of weakness. Turn my heart. Turn my eyes. Move my feet. Instruct my mind. We are dependent on God 
in this process. Now, he's doing stuff. Even crying out is doing stuff. In fact, back in Psalm 119, I want you to turn over a page to verse 112. We'll get there sometime in the fall, maybe. Um, Who knows? Psalm 119, 112. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Isn't that interesting? So in, in verse 36, he's asking God to do it. And in verse 112, he's taking credit for it. Which one is it? I just went into extreme um, unpacking that we, we, we're powerless to directly alter the affections of our heart. We can guide our heart. We can lead our heart. We can't just reach in and change our desires. Well, I think the way he can say, I incline my heart, is because of the prayer he prayed in verse 36. How is it that the psalmist can say, I incline my heart? How do I incline my heart? Well, one of the ways is by asking God to do it. This is how you do it. He's not contradicting himself. He's not confused. Nearly 100 verses earlier, he asked God to do this very thing. That's how we incline our hearts. You can lead your heart. You can put scripture in front of it, put truth in front of it, and you can pray that God would make it grow. That's what you and I can do to incline our hearts. But we rely upon God's grace for it to take hold and to have effect. I incline my heart, here's your blank, by asking the Lord to do it. I incline my heart by asking the Lord to do it, by seeking that the Lord would do it. And again, the, 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 the Bible is clear on this point. We're just getting uncomfortable when God's messing with our sovereignty. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He directs it wherever he wills. I'm thankful that God's sovereign. I'm thankful that God can change hearts and intentions and minds. So that's the first one, an outward prayer, that God would incline my heart. And the, I mean, sorry, an inward prayer, that God would incline my heart. And then a similar prayer on a similar theme, but now outwardly looking, turn my eyes. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things that give me life in your ways. I think the idea here is to guard me from temptation and distraction. Guard me from temptation and distraction. I think probably the idea of gaze is gaze with reverence, gaze with esteem. Um, Job uses the idea in that sense. Listen to Job 31, 24 to 28. Job, as he's defending himself, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I've rejoiced because of my wealth, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon when it moved in splendor, and my heart was secretly enticed, and my mouth has kissed my hand, this would have been iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. It's probably, I think, what he has here, looking at things that are worthless, things that are vain. I think it's in parallel to um, selfish gain in verse 36. But there's all sorts of worthless things. Worthless just means worthless, without worth. Some things are so worthless, they have negative value. They're wicked. We think of Jesus' statements. Matthew 5, 28, anyone who looks on a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What we look at, how we look at, how we gaze at, how we esteem, how that demonstrates what we value, what we worship, it's significant. And so the psalmist says, first, direct my heart not towards selfish gain, but 
towards your word. And then guard my eyes that I don't gaze at, stare at, longingly upon things that are worthless. Worthless doesn't mean it has to be wicked. It just means it's empty, it's vain. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 1, speaks of two things to lay aside. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As far as I'm aware, it is not illegal to run a marathon wearing snowshoes. Just not a good idea. It's going to slow you down. And in our pursuit of God and his word, some things are outright wicked. We shouldn't be looking upon. You shouldn't be clicking upon. Other things are not inherently sinful, but they have no lasting value and they can still grab our sight and fixate us. So if you're wanting to grow your desire of God's word, if you're asking God to incline your heart to his word, you also got to be aware of the other things that are vying for your attention, the other things upon which your gaze might fall, and pray that God would equally keep you from those things as well. Conformity. Inwardly incline my heart towards his testimonies and away from selfish gain. Outwardly, turn my eyes, guard me from temptation and distraction. Then look at what he adds in at the end. And give me life in your ways. Strengthen me. That notion of giving me life. Revive me. Strengthen me in your ways. Give me strength in obedience. We oftentimes want God to strengthen us. Then we'll be obedient. The psalmist here is actually saying, as I follow your ways, strengthen me. The strengthening comes in the very act of following So notice the total dependence. I need God to teach me. I need God to make me understand. I need God to move within me that I might walk in his paths. I need God to direct my heart. I need God to guard my eyes. This is a rigorous pursuit of holiness, but it's done in complete and utter dependence on God. This isn't legalism or Phariseeism. This is Christianity. This is the heart of God's children. People dependent on him in relationship with him. Let's bring it to the last section now. Confirm to me. Confirm to me your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Three points here, two petitions and one declaration. First, confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Not entirely sure what that promise is, but we probably get some insight in the next strophe. Look at verse 41. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation, according to your promise, then I shall have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Probably some deliverance immediately against foes or people who are um, persecuting, mocking, shaming him, probably. But by the fact that it's left just your promise, as God gives us a pattern to follow in prayer, we can take any of his promises and, and, and be calling on him to, to fulfill them. Again, the pattern in this psalm is given. There is concern for external realities. There is concern for real-life events. But again, concern for my heart, concern for understanding God's words begins this section. And only after making those prayers does the psalmist move to the people who are attacking him shaming him, mocking him. Turn away the reproach. 
Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Two, two things I want to observe here. First, notice that the psalmist comes to the Lord with the right self-identification. With the right self-identification. You know, there are ways that we can call on people to keep their promises that honor them and that are petulant. You know, my, my, my children can remember things. Dad, you said... That I could have the last piece. It was a Wednesday. It was raining. I remember when you said it. And so, and it sounds kind of demanding, self-entitled. There's not a hint of that here. Oh, Lord, confirm to your slave, to your servant, your promise. This isn't some name it and claim it proud person coming demanding God keep his word. Rather, it's a a self-identified slave saying to a master, O Lord, confirm, keep your word to me. And notice also the motivation, the right motivation. There's the right self-identification. And there's the right motivation, that you might be feared. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, literally it's taking God seriously. O Lord, keep your word that you've promised me, your servant, so that others might see and take you more seriously. Take your word more seriously. It's a great way to pray that God keep his promises. Come as a supplicant, not a demanding, entitled person. And come with a bigger view than simply your own need. Obviously, we're going to see in a second, the psalmist wants the enjoyment of the promise as well. But he sees beyond his own personal enjoyment to how that might create the fear of God in others. So confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. He's got the right self-identification. He's got the right motivation. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. The Bible has a lot to say about shame, dishonor, pride. Um, and, and it's a real thing. Not wanting to be put to shame is, is good Jesus went to the cross despising the shame. It was a shameful thing for Christ to be crucified, and he did not enjoy the shame. And it's fine for us to not want to be shamed. We need to be willing to be shamed for the Lord's sake. We see that even implicit here. The clear implication, turn away their approach that I dread, for your rules are good, links the shame that he dreads from his commitment to God's rules. Your, your rules are good. They're not shameful. So take away the shame that might come because I'm known to be one who holds to your word. Well, certainly today, if your neighbors, your friends understand, you believe some of the things God says about identity, gender, marriage, you may well have people trying to shame you. And God's rules are still good. And on the one hand, it is completely right to not want to feel that shame, to not enjoy that Um. The psalmist here clearly is enduring that because God's rules are good. Then he calls out to God to take the shame away from him. And notice again, he's not defending himself. He's calling on the Lord. Here's your blank. It is the Lord who will vindicate me. It's the Lord who will vindicate you. So as you experience shame and dishonor for your faithfulness to the Lord, it'll happen. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, says our Lord. Let the Lord vindicate you. Let the Lord take away your shame. Call upon the Lord to rally to your cause. And again, I can't be certain whether Daniel wrote this psalm, but certainly in the story of Daniel, we see exactly that. Daniel's fidelity to God and his word, 
caused others to attack him, to falsely accuse him. He gets thrown in the lion's den. And God takes away his shame and reproach. God vindicates him. That's the picture we have here. So keep your promise. Deliver me. Take away the reproach that I dread. For your rules are good. The logic being the shame is connected to his commitment to God's rules being good. This isn't shame because he was a jerk. This is shame because his rules are good. Which brings then finally to this bold declaration at the end. Up to now, the entire psalm has been request after request after request. From the top down, from my mind to my feet to my eyes to my heart. Change me, direct me, instruct me, mold me. Keep your word to me. Take away the shame from me. And it ends with this bold declaration. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Your righteousness, give me life. Notice here something interesting. Already, this is an answer to prayer. Both an answer to prayer and the basis for prayer. What I mean is this. He gives a warrant. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Well, it's, this declaration is really setting up the next request, isn't it? Give me life. I love your word. Give me life. But that's the very thing he asked God to do earlier. In other words, what I'm trying to say is, verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. And already, a few verses later, God's answer has to some degree been given. How else could he say, I long for your precepts? Isn't that saying my heart is directed towards your word? So the psalmist prays, God direct my heart. And mere verses later, he's declaring, I long for your word, give me life. This declaration is both an answer to prayer, or a partial answer to prayer, but then it becomes the warrant or the basis for his next prayer. So you ask God for things, and as God gives you those things, you use that as the basis to ask for more things. God, make me delight in your word. God answers, God, I delight in your word, give me life. And this is wonderful. Both an answer to prayer and the basis for prayer. He wants strength. He's tired. He's being mocked. He's being ridiculed. He's being put to shame. And he wants God to give him life. So as we prepare to sing our closing song, I just want to emphasize to you the importance of relying on God. We need God to instruct us. We need God to... Make us understand. We need God to make our feet move in his paths. We need God to turn our hearts. We need God to guard our eyes. We need God to vindicate us. Now, all of that still necessitates our involvement, our working. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, even as God works in you. But you work differently when you realize you're dependent on God. Our closing song, in a wonderful way, recognizes this. Let me read to you a few lines from Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. I love that imagery. My heart's like a lute or a guitar, and it can get out of tune. I need God to tune my heart to sing his praise. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. You probably don't use words like fetter very often, but the things you bind things with. Keep them in place. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, 
Bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Let's close in a word of prayer. I'll call the worship team up and we will sing our closing song. Lord God, we are utterly dependent on you and your grace. If we are to live, if we're to grow, if we're to understand your word, if we're to walk in obedience. So Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would give us understanding, that you would cause us to walk in your paths. We pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts from the things of this world to value you and your word, that you would guard our eyes from esteeming, gazing upon worthless things. Lord, we pray that you would do this for your glory, that you might be feared, that we might know you better. And Lord, even as you are the author of our faith, we pray that you would keep us near, shepherd us, bind our hearts to you until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.